sung, would it be true in our lives? Let us love your name. Let us cherish your name. God, be exalted through our lives. And I ask that everything that we are considering this morning would be helpful in us desiring to be a conduit through which your name is praised in this world. So God, as we have sung and glorified you through the name of Jesus, I ask that our time in continued worship over your word would also be glorifying to you. Would it be helpful to us and glorifying to your name? I ask for help. I pray for ears to hear. Um, God, there are several different languages represented by people in this room who English is not their first language. And I, I ask for help in understanding. I, I pray that I would be able to speak clearly. But Lord, most of all, we, say, we pray that your name would be exalted. So Jesus, your name is powerful. Your name is wonderful. Your name is goodness to our soul. And I ask that we would truly cherish your name. Let us be able to marvel at who you are, Lord Jesus. So help us to see your glory. And God, do the, the things and the work that only you can do in our hearts. You know how each of us need to be changed. You know the ways in which our will needs to be surrendered to you. And Lord, we ask for the help by your spirit to do that. And so thank you for the promise that you never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for the promise that you are with us even to the end of the age. And we trust you're with us now and we'll be honored. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Uh, if you're with us for the first time, we have been making our way through a series which covers the entire New Testament, and it is called Empty. The E stands for Expectations, which was a series of time looking forward to the coming of Christ. Uh, the M stood for a period of time where Messiah was revealed. Uh, we're now in the, uh, or, or the P was Pentecost after he ascended into heaven. Um, and then teaching is the T, which is where we are now for, and will be for several weeks actually. The Y is the yet to come, which looks forward to the return of Christ, um, which is good news that we have uh, been able to sing happily about. And I pray that um, all that, that Christ is doing in your life would be something for which, as we have talked about the past couple weeks, you're able to bear testimony with and to share what God is doing in your life um, because he is always at work in our lives. And part of, of what we're moving now into this portion on teaching um, is moving into the, the letters of the apostles that were written uh, from about the time that Jesus ascended into heaven, around A.D. 33 or so, all the way up until the last book of the New Testament was written, which was the revelation of John uh, in around A.D. 95 or so. So we, and, and you should know that books of the Bible are not put into chronological order. So it's sometimes hard to sort of get your head around. And that's exactly what we're striving to do uh, during this season is to understand what is the New Testament, why it's structured the way it's structured. Um, and because of, of, of how Jesus gave a command to his disciples to, to teach and to baptize people in his name and to go make disciples of all nations, that commissioning happened as Jesus ascended into heaven. And so his disciples then obeyed. 
and began to spread the gospel and share the good news with people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And his uh, gospel good news then spread around the world. And that's what we're sort of following. We're following this track of the, the gospel exploding in Jerusalem and then spreading outward uh, to the ends of the earth. And some of you have asked me, what is the, if you could recommend a, one, one resource, a single resource to help understand the Bible, I would, I would point you to the ESV Study Bible. It's my favorite uh, go-to resource in um, uh, sort of understanding New Testament. It is filled with valuable resources of maps and charts and explanatory notes and graphs that are, are helpful in getting the feel for what the, uh, the Bible is all about. And you can find it at crossway.org if you are looking to, um, to order it. But it is uh, an absolute wonderful resource that I, I use uh, regularly. And so if I had to choose just one, I would put it to you that that's the one you should, uh, should, should start with. Um, but an understanding the New Testament, um, not written in chronological order. If it were, I sat down and went through, uh, all of the dates are hard to get your head around, but somewhere around um, the beginning of the book of James, AD 45, I, I created a little chart for you to see if, um, if you wanted to know what the, um, the chronological order would be. It would be something like that. <laughs> And um, if, you're, if you want to, uh, those are approximate dates, but you'll see um, James is the first book, and then uh, the, the Paul's letter to the Galatians, then we have First and Second Thessalonians, and then the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the Gospels come later, um, so th there is a way in which if you, if you want to get a handle on how the Bible unfolds, it's helpful to read it chronologically. So that's what we're doing in this series. We're going to move through um, all of the books of the New Testament, the epistles, and the, the, the New Testament is structured not according to what we might think. We might want to order the books chronologically, but there's a, a order of the, the way the New Testament is structured is by genre and then by author and then by length. Of, of the letters. And so we have the Gospels, which we've already been through. We have Acts, which is the history of the New, uh, of the New Testament church. Um, but Acts is not merely history. The, the Holy Spirit is still at work in his people. And so there's a sense of which, yes, Acts is history, but it's also present. That the work of Christ continues through his Holy Spirit. And then after Acts, we have the epistles. There are 21 epistles in the New Testament. Epistle simply means letters. So 21 letters that follow Acts uh, until you get to the end, which is Revelation. And so we're going to follow those through. We're going to get through seven today. It's an impossible task, I know. And I, I want to pull my hair out every week. How and who ever thought of this? Steve Brown, he came up with the sermon series. No, I'm just kidding. Um, he, we were working together. I have to remind myself, the point is not to get through everything, but give you an, an overarching understanding of where we're going. So today, we are going to do the impossible task of moving through seven epistles, um, which we, we actually won't be able to do. You'll hear the names of seven, I'll put it that way. Um, but what we're going to do is kind of focus on two. So we're going to look at James, since that was the first one. Uh, we'll then look at um, uh, Galatians, which comes next, and then First and Second Thessalonians, and then First and Second Corinthians, and then finally we'll land on the book of Romans. So have you ever heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones? Anybody? Some of you have. Um, 
wonderful English teacher, preacher from the last century, he preached 366 sermons on the book of Romans, and it took him 12 years. I can't, I don't even have 12 minutes to give you this morning on the book of Romans, and yet we're going to do it. So what the point is, so today we're going to look at the first epistle um, written. We'll start with the letter to, uh, a letter of James. So that's where we'll begin. You don't really need to turn there in your Bible, but uh, just to get a feel, you can if you want. Um, uh, James is a, a little letter, but probably the first that was written And it opens with this sentence, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. I sometimes use greetings. How many of you say that? Have you ever, ever, when you meet somebody, greetings, do you say that? My kids always say, dad, nobody says that. (laughs) I do. It's biblical, so I'm sticking with it. So if you hear me say greetings, I don't know. It's just something I find comfort in. But James who is the question. There were two Jameses who were part of the 12 disciples. It's neither of them. um, And most likely this is James the brother of Jesus. And so uh, this is probably written in about AD 45 or so. It's hard to date, but somewhere in that neighborhood. But what struck me as I um, sat down to, to consider this is... James did not believe in Jesus until after his resurrection. Jesus' own brother, John chapter 7, tells us even his brothers, and by the way, some of you might not know, Jesus did have four half-brothers, and and at least two, possibly three or more sisters. Um, We are told this in, I think, Matthew 13 and in Mark 6. Um, Jesus had four half-brothers, so Mary and Joseph had other children. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She was a perpetual mother who was always taking care of kids. And, and so uh, Jesus had a lot of siblings. James was the eldest. Next to Jesus came James. And he did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry until after his resurrection. Fascinating to me. In fact, on one occasion, neither did Mary in the beginning. When Jesus had, who was beginning to teach and to heal, everybody began coming to the house, right? And if you know, in, in a world in which there's no hospitals, there's no medication, there's no penicillin, there's no booster shots, there's nothing. When, when you're sick and somebody can heal you, you get there. So Jesus had had begun to heal people. His public ministry had begun and word got out and every sick person on the planet showed up at Jesus' house. And we are told, this is in Mark 3, Mary and Jesus' four half-brothers got together and went to the house because they literally, the word is, to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind (laughs) The boy has gone off the rails. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know who he thinks he is. He's nuts. This this is his family. So if your family thinks you're nuts, you're in good company. Jesus knows what that is like. And yet, by the time Jesus has been resurrected, James is convinced. James, Jesus' brother, becomes absolutely convinced that he actually is the Messiah. And, and he, Paul will tell us he becomes a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Very significant leader. But what, another thing that struck me is that James, he describes himself as a servant. If, 
if you look at that first verse again, James, a servant of God, he didn't say the brother of the Lord Jesus. He didn't say James, the pillar of the church. He simply says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, it just struck me. How many times do we in our culture love for titles to demonstrate our importance and value, right? If you wish, you may call me Rabbi Todd or the right reverend, right? There, there's, we want titles sometimes, and James doesn't do that. He's nothing of it. He could have said, the, the oldest brother of Jesus, right? As if that would give some authority. He doesn't. I understand there are ways in which titles communicate competency in a field. That's, that's clear and that's good. But sometimes, do we use titles to elevate our, and, and inflate our own ego. Here, here's a guy who just astounds me, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just a servant. He is content to say he is just a servant. Uh, may we be the same. May we carry that kind of humble demeanor in speaking powerfully and persuasively in communicating the truth. And yet, lovingly and humbly. So James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. James grew up in Jerusalem. He spent his time in Jerusalem. That's where he wrote this letter. And, and this is the first um, New Testament epistle written. So this is the earliest one that we have. And actually, this was also the very first book of the Bible that I read through on my own. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, I was nine years old. My oldest brother came home from college. Um, and you know, when you come home from college, you know everything. And so my brother, he told me, he goes, have you ever read through a whole book of the Bible? I was nine years old. No. How many nine-year-olds have sat down and read through you know, the book of the Bible? No, I've not. And he said, sit on my bed. Don't get off my bed until you read the book of James. Okay, he was bigger than me. I had to. So I, I sat down and I read through the letter to James and I was actually incredibly encouraged because he came back and he talked with me and, and we discussed it and I, I, I got the main idea. And it was so encouraging to a little nine-year-old that you can understand scripture. There were finer points that I was a little confused on, but it was exceedingly encouraging to me. Just read the Bible. You get the main idea. And so James is a kind of New Testament book of Proverbs, if you will. It's a, it's a kind of compendium of, of wisdom and, and truth. And so there are a couple of things that uh, James wants uh, his readers to know. Remember, he's, he's writing to Christians who are scattered, believers who are scattered, probably because of the persecution that arose when Stephen was killed. And so Christians have been kicked out of Jerusalem, and he's writing to a scattered people. He's writing to a suffering people. That's the first thing on his mind. So the verses 2 to 4 say this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing." Do you hear James's confidence in the sovereignty of God? Don't lose your faith over suffering. 
Be convinced God is working for your good. He is is maturing you and perfecting your faith through suffering, not in spite of it. God is not against you. He's not absent in seasons of suffering. Some of you are in seasons of suffering. And, and, and probably if you're not, you will be soon. And so difficulties will come. And yet James wants you to know, do not let your faith fail through seasons of testing and trial and difficulty. Paul says the same thing. He also says, it is through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of heaven. Meaning you're not going to get into heaven without going through some kind of trial and temptation. You're going to experience testing. So don't let your faith fail. So that's one theme. That's the, that's the first thing on his mind is keep moving through suffering, through seasons of testing. Trust that God is at work maturing you and strengthening your faith. Another thing that is on his mind is your faith must be a faith that is put into action. So your faith needs to be a faith that is lived out. He says it this way. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And he also says, faith without works is dead. So James calls believers to live out your faith, meaning a, a true and genuine Christian lives out his or her faith in every arena of life. You you can't simply say, I'm a Christian, and then never see it in your life. There's no such thing as a genuine private faith that nobody knows about. That's not a New Testament idea. So James says, it's great to know the teachings of Jesus, but do it is, is what followers are called to. And so this notion of how to live out faith and tell the difference between true and fake faith, because there are such things, that's part of what James is concerned about. So he wants to know, how can you tell the difference if a person has a real saving faith in Jesus versus someone who merely says they do? That's his concern. And so he he begins to talk about this. And he essentially is asking the question, how do you know your faith is genuine? Because he goes on and illustrates this, mere knowledge or an accumulation of facts is not saving faith. He says, demons, demons know God and tremble in his presence. They believe in God and tremble. If you give any demon a theological test, he'll, he'll pass it. What's the difference? It's not just knowledge. It's not just knowing something. It's actually being transformed inwardly from the heart so that you then want to do it. So he moves us beyond merely knowing facts about Jesus to actually becoming familiar with Jesus through the presence of his Holy Spirit and having his Spirit help us obey him in life. So that's a, that's a massive issue for James. And, and he says... We need some examples of this. He gives a couple of examples. One is Abraham and one is Rahab. And he says, how do we know that the faith of Abraham is genuine? Or the faith of Rahab, for example, is genuine. We know because of what they did. They obeyed. When God told Abraham to go and sacrifice your son, he did it. He obeyed. When when Rahab heard that God had given the city into the hands of the Israelites, she said, I'm on their side. I believe God is the God. So I'm going to let my actions accord with my faith. And so James concludes in in 2.24, he says, You see, a person is justified by works 
not by faith alone. A person is justified by faith and not by faith alone. The question that we need to ask is, justified in the sight of whom? Now, this becomes incredibly important because if you know the history of the church, many have said James and Paul teach contrary doctrines. And some, some of you, maybe you have struggled with this notion. Paul will say almost the exact opposite of this when we get to Galatians, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. So how do we understand James saying a person is justified by his works, not by faith alone? James is, has in his mind, how do we as a community evaluate true saving faith? How do we assess whether or not someone has true saving faith? And James is arguing, we know it because of what they do. We know how they live out their lives. We know someone genuinely has a faith that they live according to because you really, what you really believe affects what you do. That's what he is pointing to. You don't merely say something and never see it demonstrated in your life. Soul-saving faith is a living and active faith that gets worked out in life. And so James will make, if you are one of those people who uh, nobody would ever, if you've ever been asked a question, is, is, is some, if somebody were to watch your life, is there enough evidence to convict you of being a, a Christian? If they were just to watch you, how you move through your week, how you fill out your expense reports, how you log your time, the conversations you have, what you do when nobody's around, would, it, would they know enough to say, that person is a follower of Jesus? James wants to make you very uncomfortable if the answer is yes to that. If you, if I, I'm a Christian, but nothing in my life looks like I'm a Christian, James will make you very uncomfortable. And that's what he's doing. He is saying we have to live out our faith. He is calling us to, to force the question, do you really believe this? Do you really believe Jesus will take care of you? Then don't cheat on your taxes. Because he will provide for you if you really believe it. Fill it out true. Trust in him. In whom do you trust? And that's his question. And so in a community, how do you know Todd Cravens has real saving faith? Well, does he live it out? Go ask my kids, my wife, right? When we are alone, how do we live our lives? If you're just saying that you have faith and there's no actions to accord with that faith, then James would say, you have no confidence in believing that that is a saving faith. Saving faith changes you. Why? Because being a Christian is not simply saying, I agree to this, and I agree to this, and I agree to this, and I agree to this. It is receiving the Holy Spirit of Jesus who then shapes what you do. He is at work within you, causing you to live out your faith. And that is what James is calling people to. So he says, true faith is justified by its actions. He is saying, we know it's real if we see persistent obedience in life. So that's James's this one main idea. And now we're going to move to Galatians, where Paul seemingly says exactly the opposite. And we have to wrestle with this because there are apparent contradictions in Scripture. There are some times when Scripture looks like it contradicts. And some people will use that to destroy the faith of those who are, are wanting to believe in Jesus. And so 
the question is, let's, let's look at the context and see what actually is being said. So go, let's go with me to Galatians. Uh, the beginning of the book, Paul is identified as the author. And again, a very sweet opening. Paul says, uh, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Paul's sentences are always so long because truth is so important. He just has to get it all out there. And so he says, and all the brothers who are with me, this little group of traveling companions with me, um, I'm writing to the churches in Galatia, which is central Turkey today. It's a group of churches. So right uh, in the, it, it, more than one, this is a letter that's called an encyclical. It's intended to be distributed around a group of churches, which is wonderful because every time a, a church would receive a letter like this, they would copy it. So, for example, if Paul wrote a letter to Hope Church and it said, to the churches in Winchester, we'd receive Paul's letter. Uh, I, we would get a faithful scribe to make a copy because we have to send it down to First Church of Christ down the road here, make sure they get that letter. But we don't want to lose it. And so we keep a copy. That's how we have so many different New Testament documents. And yet he's writing to the churches in Galatia. This is about A.D. 48. So three or four years or so after Paul, after James had written his letter, Paul is now writing. And he and Barnabas had traveled through this region on their uh, first missionary journey. And so they were there in um, uh, this region of, of churches for about three weeks or so. They got attacked by a mob and forced out much more quickly than they intended. Paul would have loved to stay and make sure that the Christians were founded uh, and grounded in their faith. But they, they had to leave quickly in order to save their lives. After they left, um, some false teachers came in and began saying, uh, you need to, if you want to be a faithful follower of Jesus, you need to get circumcised, you need to keep the law. So false teaching crept up after they had disappeared. And Paul is writing because he heard about this. He heard about what happened. He wants to clarify. What does it take to become a believer? And Paul says, if, if you have, he, he, he writes to them, Galatians, I'm amazed that you are so quickly abandoning the gospel and you're believing another gospel, a different gospel, which actually isn't a gospel at all. It's actually a series of works-based uh, kinds of, of requirements in order for you to keep salvation. And he says, don't let anyone change your mind. Salvation comes by faith and faith alone. That's the purpose of this letter, is to explain we are accepted by God based upon faith and nothing else. And he, he writes with incredible, vivid, forceful language to convince them. Don't let anybody persuade you of this. He says in verses 8 and 9 of the first chapter, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you before when we were with you, let him be accursed. And he said, I'll set it before, I'll say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Paul is saying anybody that comes to you and tells you that you have to do certain acts or perform good works or deeds in order to be accepted by God, he said, let him be accursed. That's incredible language. Absolutely incredible. And Paul says, the gospel comes by faith. We receive the Holy Spirit by faith, by simply believing. And he says, let me just tell you a story of my own life. 
He said, I was a blasphemer. I hated Jesus. I attacked the church. I was persecuting Christians from one city to the next city. And then Jesus revealed himself to me. I had done nothing worthy of that kind of revelation is what he's saying. He tells his own terrible testimony of how he violently opposed the gospel. And he says, Jesus called me by grace. I, I did nothing to earn the right to receive the truth of the gospel. God was simply gracious to me. I was a violent enemy and yet Jesus called me by grace. And so Paul says, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. It's almost exactly the opposite of what James said. But remember, who was the audience in James's mind when he's making those statements? Who does the context say? Not a rhetorical question. I want somebody to tell me. Who was James when he was thinking about you're justified by works? Who was the audience? It's the community. It's the people, right? How do we look at one another's faith? Paul is now about to answer a question, okay, before whose sight are we justified? When Paul's making this statement, and in, in verse 11 of chapter 3, we get this. It is evident that no one is justified before God. Critical words. No one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. But notice the answer to the question. Who's the audience now? It's in God's sight. So James has an entirely different audience in mind. He's saying, how do we one another know that we are justified, that we're walking with the Lord is by our faith being worked out in action. And Paul is saying, in the sight of God, how are you justified? Upon what basis does God justly declare you not guilty? That's what Paul means by justified. He doesn't mean verified. He means upon what basis does God say Edwin Walter, not guilty. Upon what basis? And, and Paul says it is by faith. Why? Because he goes on and he explains nobody does the law. You can't earn the right to be accepted by God. No one obeys completely. Nobody does that. Yeah, verse 10. For everyone who relies on works of the law is under a curse. This is Galatians 3.10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Anybody in this room, you say, I've done everything written in God's word. I've kept all the laws. Anybody? I mean, you shall not covet. Well, okay, I'm done. None of us carry that kind of perfect obedience. And yet that's what the law demands. The law is not gracious. It is demanding and unbending. And Pope Paul says, if you want to get a, a, a foundation of justification based upon works in the sight of God, you're hopeless. You're under a curse. And yet, there was one person who did perfectly obey everything written in the book. And you know what his name is? His name is Jesus. That's why salvation comes to us to through faith to Jesus. So we, we read this in verses 13 to 14. Christ, 
the one who obeyed completely, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That, that takes us back to the beginning of Casket. Our Old Testament series, when God made a promise to Abraham, in you, all nations will be blessed. Jesus fulfilled that. He perfectly obeyed God's will at every point. Never disobeyed. He never sinned. And that is a fun, foundational tenet of the Christian faith. If Jesus sinned, we're in trouble, folks. Our faith is in vain and we are hopeless if Jesus sinned. But he didn't sin, and we know he didn't sin because when he died, he didn't stay dead. Death did not have a grip on him. He rose from the dead, proving that his sacrifice could atone for those who trust in him. He bore that curse. And so that's the gospel. The person who was completely innocent took upon himself the guilt of everybody who's guilty, who would trust in him so that God could then, through the blood of Christ, look at those who were guilty as being innocent. And every one of us are guilty of so many things. So many sins. We're all guilty. And yet, by putting our faith in Christ, faith, not works. Paul's clear. Nobody earns this right to receive the Holy Spirit. So justified in the sight of God, what does God look at in order to say, Edwin Walter, you are not guilty? He looks to see, does Edwin Walter have faith in Jesus Christ? Does Todd Cravens have faith? And when he sees that, he says, not guilty, clean, renewed. I give you my spirit. And so Paul asks the Galatians in chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? And the answer is, of course, by hearing of faith. We receive the Holy Spirit by hearing of faith. And he says, are, are you so foolish? Then now having begun by the spirit, are you going to be perfected by the flesh? Have you begun this life in Christ by faith in Jesus and now think you're going to earn it by continuing to do good works and letting that be the basis? Paul says, if you started in life in Christ by faith, then you are going to stay in Christ by faith. So, folks, if you think, I don't, you know, I had faith in Jesus when I was eight years old and, you know, that was it. We need faith every day to keep walking this walk of our Christian life. We need to trust in Jesus every day. We need, without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so he says, continue in the faith. The faith is the justification before God of how he declares us not guilty and gives the Holy Spirit. Are we to do good works? Yes, Absolutely. Paul says we were created for good works. But those works are not the foundation of God's justification of declaring you not guilty. It is faith that is that foundational justification. The works then come after the faith. But they're not the basis of it. So Paul labors incredibly hard to make that clear. And I hope you've seen, James is not saying anything different than Paul. He's have a different audience in mind. They're using the same words, which is why it's so difficult. 
And yet, they have two different contexts. So when you study the Bible, context is king. You have to understand, what is the context in which the passage comes? So Paul is saying, God declares you not guilty based upon faith. But then the rest of us then see that worked out and we can say, yeah, I think Edwin Walters loves Jesus. He, he lives it out. He's, he's got the fruit of the Spirit in him. So that's the context in which Paul and, and James come together. They're not contradicting each other. Um, and if that's not clear, then come and see me afterwards and we'll try to make sure that it is clear. Because this is a central point of what it means to be a Christian. So now we move on to the next set of, of, of the epistles, which is First and Second Thessalonians. Paul is writing here uh, to Thessalonica, which is a, a little city in the capital of Macedonia. He was writing now about A.D. 50 and 51, each of these letters uh, separated by about a year. And I'm going to go real quick through the, the next few letters because you, you're going to glaze over and fall asleep on me, and I don't want you to do that. So he's writing here with some primary concerns. First of all, he has discovered that uh, he got kicked out. He got chased out of this city as well. And, and they have subsequently learned of Paul's suffering. They were also enduring their own suffering. So he writes to explain suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 to 4, he says this. So they have gotten word of all that Paul has gone through. And he says, let no one be moved by these afflictions, meaning his own afflictions. Um, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know now. Right? So we told you this. We told you this was coming. So don't be in, in despair about this. And how many times have we heard Paul talk about suffering? In almost every letter. Maybe some of you get tired of hearing Yes, okay, God's working through suffering. Paul thinks it's important enough to write in almost every letter he writes. And so this is something we need to truly be convinced about and not uh, be shaken about and also help one another to be fortified in is that God is actually working through our suffering. So he says, we're destined for this. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you're going to suffer at some point. You need to be aware of that. Paul said, I told you this when I was with you. I'm telling you now again, this is what we're destined for. Why? If the world hated our master, what do you think it's going to do to the, uh, the servants? We are going to suffer. And so Paul writes to encourage them. He also writes to clarify what happens to people, believers, when they die. Because evidently there were some very close people within this church community who had experienced death. And, and they were confused. If Jesus were to come back, did the dead Christians miss out? Paul writes and he says, they won't miss a thing. They're going to wake up before he shows up. And so they're actually going to see Jesus before you do. So don't worry. So I'm just summarizing, but that's, that's his point. Don't worry about those who have died in Christ. They will not miss a thing. Now moving on to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, writing uh, from uh, Ephesus at about A.D. 54 or 55, he's writing to Corinth, a, a major port city, and this church was exceedingly messed up. 
They had lots of confusion. There was lots of division. There was rampant sexual immorality. Um, Paul writes to clarify all of this. How do you treat someone who is a member of the church community? who is living in open and flagrant sin. How are you supposed to do this? Paul says, kick him out. Someone who says he's a Christian and yet refuses to, to live it, sound like James, then you need to put him out of the community. He also writes, don't be divided over people. He talks about food sacrifice to idols. He gives instructions about corporate worship and how you're to govern yourselves inside of corporate worship as well as living outside. And the point of all of it is, if I had to pick one verse uh, to summarize 1 Corinthians, it would be this one. 1 Corinthians 10 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. That's his theme for that entire letter. So whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians addresses some of the other similar aspects uh, of what we've already seen. But one key verse in 2 Corinthians is 3.18, which says this, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's a little snapshot of sanctification. You're being inwardly changed from one degree of glory to the next, a little bit at a time. Changed here. God reveals something. The Spirit of God works with you on it. You strive to correct it. Then something else, He reveals something else to you. You realize, okay, now I have to fix this and I have to work on this. I have to change my attitude about that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And He does it by degrees. Sometimes we get frustrated. I wish I could be redeemed at a quicker rate. And yet God's pacing through the Holy Spirit is gentle. It's progressive. And it ought to be always uh, moving forward. But that's, that's Paul's main idea in 2 Corinthians. And now finally, the, the last one we'll look at this morning is Romans. Uh, written at about AD 57 or so, probably from Corinth. Paul's writing to Rome. Uh, he's, he's getting towards the end of his life here. Um, he's probably, if I did the math correct, he's been in ministry for about 25 years. He has a, a lot, he's, he's been on three mission trips um, over the course of his life. He has traveled the world. He's answered every question that people bring up to object to Christianity. He knows the questions Jews are going to answer. He knows the questions that Gentiles will, will ask. Uh, I said answer. I meant ask. And so he writes Romans because he wants to go to some place and preach the gospel where the gospel has never been preached. And in his mind, it's Spain. And he knows he can't get there without the help of a local church. So he writes Romans so that they understand his... Um, philosophy of ministry, the, the content of his teaching, and his goals for spreading the gospel, hoping that they will support him after he spends a little time with them and send him on his way. So Romans is the most uh, comprehensive theo theology of the entire New Testament. If you want a one book that explains everything that Christianity teaches, it's Romans. 
And he spends the first few chapters explaining uh, doctrine and, and why we need redemption and the, the nature of sin and the effect of salvation. And then that's from like 1 to 12. And then from chapters 12 on is the effect of what does salvation look like after you become a believer? So the first 12, 11 chapters are here's what you need to know. And then the last from 12 to 16 is this is the effect it will have on your life. This is the, the, the outward act of worship. And so one, um, one verse from uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it. Right? It's a global message to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is, the gospel, it is the righteousness of God is revealed through it from faith to faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says, I'm, I'm, I'm explaining the gospel because that is the means of salvation. And the gospel is that God sent his son completely undeserving of, of any uh, retribution or judgment. He bore the sin of those who put their faith in him. He then pours out his spirit on all who would call upon his name. And he grants salvation to those who trust in him through faith. He argues again that faith is the foundation of, of receiving the Holy Spirit. And so uh, th that's really the, it's, a, it's an expanded Galatians. Galatians is a little Romans so if you want to read a summary, the cliff notes of Romans, read Galatians. If you want to go to the full book, read all of Romans, which is absolutely amazing. And so what's the point? What's the point in all of this? Um, I, I, one verse from the very end of Romans, chapter 15, verses four, two sentences I'll conclude with. Whatever has been written, this is Paul writing, he says, whatever has been written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He's saying everything that was written in what we call the Old Testament was written to give endurance and encouragement and hope. And he goes on and he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing all of this to give you encouragement, to, to grant endurance through this crazy world, and then also so that when you come together, you can with one voice praise the Lord God. That's the point. All that we have seen as we move through the New Testament is Christ being at work in his people, changing lives so that that message can be shared at a global basis so that hope can be given. Confident hope. Not, I wish I get to heaven. I, I know I will get to heaven because Jesus has accomplished salvation and, and I just have to get there. It's a future certainty. No other religion gives you the kind of future certainty that Christianity does. You, you're just left guessing, hoping at the end of time with every other religion that, that the scales will be balanced and tip in your favor. But Christianity comes saying, Jesus accomplished salvation. He did everything God called him to do. He died and he rose again to come and tell us he did it. And so I felt like a little Easter this morning, Edwin, in the songs that you chose. It, there was this sense of goodness and joy. And, and I pray 
as we meditate on these truths of God's words, that the joy of the gospel would seep into your soul and give you encouragement to make it through this week and endurance to keep you believing. And so that with one voice, you can say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And that's, that's what we're going to do. We are with one voice. We are going to sing some praises to the Lord. But I'm going to pray And then I'm going to invite you to just sit for 30 seconds and ask the Lord, what do you want me to hear from this today? What do you want me to hear from this today, Lord Jesus? So I'll pray and then we'll wait 30 seconds or so and then we will with one voice sing. Father, thank you for sending your son and... Jesus, thank you for laying down your life, for taking it up again, and for pouring out your spirit upon those who would call upon you in faith. And Holy Spirit, would you grant us encouragement? Would you grant us endurance? Would you give us unshakable hope so that we can be ambassadors of hope for the name of Jesus in this world? That's in your name I pray.